Jennifer Matt, executive producer of the Women's Sports Film Festival, where our mission is to provide a platform for documentary filmmakers to amplify the stories of strong, embodied women and girls. The podcast features in-depth conversations with filmmakers and athletes working at the intersection of sport, film, and activism. On this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with June Stinson, director of the film Footballistas for Life, a story about a community in Oakland, California, and their fight for a proper soccer field. June is joined by Coach Danya Cabello, the mentor responsible for teaching these kids the powerful and lifelong lesson of what can happen when they assert their own agency. Coach Danya played soccer at Cal and professional soccer in Brazil. She is the daughter of political refugees from Chile. The festival hosted a work-in-progress screening of Footballistas for Life in July 2017. The now-completed film will screen as part of our Girls' Day program in our 2018 film festival. This is Jennifer Matt. I'm with the Women's Sports Film Festival, and we are here today interviewing June Stinson and Danya Cabello. So um, we are going to talk about this great film they made, um, Footballistas for Life. So June, I just want to start with you, is um, where did this idea come from, and how did you meet Danya? Yeah, so um, thank you for having us on your podcast, by the way. Um, I directed a film when I was in grad school about women's pro soccer, and it um, focused on uh, a women's team here in the Bay Area called FC Gold Pride, and it was um, a film I did the year they happened to fold, um, which, you know, I knew going into it that things weren't um, financially doing so well with the team, but I didn't know when I started that they would that w- they would actually fold. And so it's a short film that actually captures um, that period of time when not only um, the Women's Pro Soccer League um, was going through a lot of um, issues, but this particular team, which at the time was one of the best professional women's soccer teams in the world, um, folded. And it was right here in the Bay Area. Hardly anybody knew about it. Um, so I was I was screening that film around the Bay Area, and I was reaching out to um, women who were professional soccer players or had played formerly were professional soccer players. And, and I was connected with Danya, who came to one of my screenings, and um, she sat on a panel, and I was just blown away by how amazing she was, and she had so many um, incredible things to say about um, her experience being a woman and a professional soccer player um, playing at Cal, then playing for Santos in Brazil, and then here in the U.S., Um, And then um, she also spoke about her experience as an educator um, and a soccer coach in East Oakland. And shortly after that, she invited me to um, Life Academy, um, where she was coaching at the time. And I got to meet her students. Um, It just so happened that the night before um, I came to the school, uh, there was an alum who was um, had been shot and killed. And so Danya had um, told me about that bef- before I 
uh, spoke with the students in, in her after school program. Um, and, um, just, you know, told me that the, the students might not be completely focused, um, that they were processing what had just happened. Um, and that was a big shock to me. Um, and I was, uh, I learned about the field campaign was really interested in how Life Academy students were responding to, um, gun violence in the community. Um, over the course of seven months though, um, as I was kind of thinking about how I would potentially do a story, not necessarily, ne necessarily a film. I was a freelance journalist at the time, so I was thinking of other mediums as well. Um, but over the course of seven months, um, two more students um, who are part of the Life Academy community had been shot and killed. Um, and that when uh, the third student, Alejandro Aguilera, um, was killed... Um, I just felt very um, compelled to, to make this a bigger story and that um, it was so important what these kids were doing um, to respond to violence in their neighborhood, but also um, fighting for a safe place for them to play soccer. And so, Danya, is the Life Academy the same as Footballistas for Life? Is that the same name or is that a different... Uh no, I think group. they've 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 kind of outgrown it now that they have the soccer field. Um, the program doesn't exist in the same way. It ha they have teams, boys and girls, middle school and high school teams get to play there. Um, so the the program and the way that we taught it doesn't exist anymore. I think some of the core values do. They get passed on through storytelling. And actually, I recently learned that. One of my former, she was kind of a periphery futbolista. I only say periphery because she was already on like two or three soccer teams in high school. So she would come to our program every now and then, uh, Gabby Martinez. And she then returned to Life Academy as the soccer coach while she was in, long after she'd already graduated. Mm. Um, so there's some remnants of, of the culture still left over, but not in the same way. So did you start the Life Academy in response to uh, certain events happening, or what, what, what brought Life Academy to birth? Um, so I was already a teacher full-time at the school, an educator. I worked in different capacities, and about a year after I had already been working at the school, one of the senior girls saw me um, after school when there was nobody left juggling a soccer ball, and she came up to me and was like, Danya, what are you doing? Like, what is this? You play. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, kind of like whatever. It, I wasn't playing, and so I had kind of taken a, like a, a, a break, a significant break away from playing. Um, and so a lot of my young student, younger students didn't know that I had this relationship to the game, and she was like, oh, no tomorrow or like next week you're coming to school you're bringing balls and cones and this because we want to play and it was a few days later she had gotten um, a crew of about 10 senior girls and a handful of freshman boys and we started trainings after school two days a week and that's how the futbolistas began did, did they have an, any organized teams at the school no, no at that point there were no organized teams playing mm -hmm. in any conference or any league. Okay. So in in the film, how did you guys kind of zero in on the main characters? 
um, because I find both of them super interesting and their, their stories are so relevant right now with what's going on with DACA and, um, and immigration policy in our country. So like, how did those two stories kind of pop out at you, June? Um, well, as a storyteller, I just, um, I come into stories thinking about how, um, they can be character driven because it's, um, it's the people in the stories, um, over the issues that usually is what draw people into, into the piece. And, um, so I was, I knew when I, when I, um, uh, connected, when I decided to do a film on the futbolistas that I wanted to focus on, um, some of the, some of the students in the program. And, um, I also knew that I, uh, wanted to focus on a boy and a girl. Um, there were only three girls in the program at the time. And, um, and it was really hard to decide which, cause they were all really amazing. Um, the reason I decided that I wanted to focus on April was there was, it was really April gravitated to the camera. Um, she was, um, not camera shy at all. Um, just had this incredible leadership. Um, and, um, like right off the bat, I could tell she was super sharp and I was really excited to see like, um, where, where she would go in the course of the year that I planned on, or originally I planned on just filming over the course of one school year. Um, and so really that's the main reason I, um, was drawn to April. Ben, I had talked to um, various teachers uh, about the students and their stories, and Obama had just recently passed DACA, and I learned that Ben was a DACA recipient. And so I was, at that time, not too much had been written about it, um, and not too many films had come out about it. And so I was really interested in his journey and what that year would look like um, as he, um, I take that back, he wasn't a recipient yet, he was applying for a DACA. Mm -hmm. So I was curious about what that journey would be like and also um, what that experience would be like um, for him applying to college. Um, and so those are, uh, you know, just parts of the story that organically found its way into this bigger story of the student campaign for mm -hmm. the field. So, so, Danya, tell us a little bit about your uh, athletic background um, because uh, that it feeds a lot into the story. And the the part I loved about the film is when you talked about your like discipline, work ethic, confidence, community building. I mean, you attribute all of that that you have today to playing sports. Yeah, so I do attribute a lot of it to sports. I grew up from the age of five playing on an organized soccer league in Oakland. And for the first maybe five years of my playing, my uncle was my coach. Um, and it was something that my family really supported me in doing. And I, I never questioned it. They never questioned me and my relationship to it. Um, and I just kind of continued on this path that existed and still exists in different ways ways um, of playing organized at higher levels. So I played ODP and state and 
got a scholarship to play at UC Berkeley. I played there for four years. Um, and then when I went to do my final semester abroad in Brazil, I got an opportunity to try out and play with Santos um, outside of Sao Paulo. And when I came home from that experience, I was a little bit jaded. Um, the reality of being a, a woman and an athlete is already very difficult, but in the context of also being in Brazil, there was something where it almost felt like a step down from playing NCAA collegiate ball, just because of the way that women are treated, um, not necessarily directly as like by other people, but just as an afterthought around an af you know facilities use and gear and just a lot of things that kind of make one what one imagines a professional athlete kind of living and having access to we as women athletes in brazil didn't have that same that same access so um it made it easy for me to take a step away and return home and focus on things a little bit much beyond soccer which was education in oakland and it was actually my young players uh some of the futbolistas, some of the founding members, that when the Bay Area Breeze was restarting like a professional league in the in the women's pro league, my athletes were the ones at Life Academy who encouraged me to go to the weekend tryout because I wasn't going to. And I did, and I made it. And my last season playing semi-pro was with the Bay Area Breeze. <coughs> you talked about uh, um, in some of your studies uh doing something called sport liberation educator. Yeah. Tell us what that means. You know, so one of the comments that you'd asked about the discipline, the work ethic that I attribute to soccer, um, those are ethics that I think and, and just behaviors that one does learn. But it was really tapping back into my family values and the way that I was raised to be a critical thinker um, coupled with those other attributes that I learned in sports that made me see a broader picture of what's actually possible when you take all that training and that focus and you put it towards something that has much larger benefits than just a gold medal for yourself or for your 11 teammates. Um, so there was a little bit of a couple things happening at the same time. It was taking a lot of that discipline, but also unlearning and opening my eyes to things that sport doesn't always invite. Um, sport is very regimented and it can be highly militarized in this country. Um, and it can be, it can really narrow one's perspective because it's a very homogeneous and it's, you're trained to kind of do jump, you know, run, not question. Um, and so as I evolved in my own life, it was really kind of combining intentionally those two critical thought and critical movement. Um, to kind of come up with this program called Futbolistas that really looked at more of the joyful aspects of play and really centered those as liberatory. And so when I went back to school, I studied liberatory pedagogy, pedagogies of freedom. And I, along with other, you know, a few other scholars that I know here and there throughout the country, tried to use that theory to inform how one might imagine coaching using those theories um so what are you uh, what are you doing with that now what um are you using that in your work today yeah you know my work I don't have any one set path I think that the past 10 years have been me carving out my own journey everything from doing futbolistas to 
um, stepping more into the arts and curating art exhibits around themes of freedom and sport and play beyond just soccer. Um, and I do, I do work in health and wellness. I, um, I consult with violence prevention organization named Futures Without Violence on curriculum geared towards coaches across the U.S. to think about how to do incorporate attributes of healthy relationships into their own coaching practices. Um, and starting my own uh, body cannabis topicals to heal all of the years of damage that my body kind of went through with sport kind of took me to this place of really looking at both plant medicine and sports medicine and kind of combining them in, in this journey, which is very much what this has been. All things that in traditional sports, there's not a lot of room for. Mm -hmm. And so I'm carving and making the room for those things to be relevant. So I'm trying to get a sense of the timing is, uh, had the students already like applied for the grant from U.S. Soccer by the time you, you, uh, got introduced to the to the story yeah, yeah. the campaign had already happened okay um, by the time I started filming um and and one of the things that you guys said is that you were amazed by uh, I guess Danya you were saying this that the power of their agency like you just when they said oh we're gonna apply for this you're like yeah good luck <laughs> like or you know just how they really believed in it and it makes me think of the power of the agency of those kids in Parkland who have also stood up and said, uh, no, this isn't going to work for us anymore. And how much, uh, how much power is untapped at that age? Um, but you guys, you guys made this film and you, you started this movement and you have this huge physical artifact that is being used every day, all day mm -hmm. in the middle of Fruitvale. It's like, it's an amazing thing that you can go look at it. You know, a lot of times your work doesn't provide a physical artifact like that right I mean on the agency part I think it really it just went to show me how I had become a little bit comfortable to the way in which dynamics of power play out mm. that oh no we don't have we have the space but we don't have the money therefore I don't know we're not going to get the money and the kids didn't see it that way yet they're not I don't think they're as jaded in the same way um and we're really committed and it just took having, you know, one or two adult allies to support and kind of help craft their story for that whole team of young people to really change their physical environment. Um, you know, and I won't say that it's, it's always just a, a story. When I go to the field and I see it, um, I'm so proud of it and proud of what they did. And at the same time, I think it's okay to be critical of it um, because it is a turf field. And you can smell the, the, the tar, you can smell the rubber, which I can only imagine is harmful. And so just thinking about, okay, so what would the next iteration, what could another campaign of young people do to really make that field as safe as possible mm -hmm. with now that we have information that when we were making and campaigning, we didn't know. You yeah. Know? And it's probably, you know, 20 degrees hotter than all the area around it, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> um, June, when you uh, went in there, like, what was it like being behind the camera in April's house where her parents are undocumented, they could get um, deported at any time, and, and you know, so she's living under that stress. It just, it made me think about, like, A, how I was born into the lottery, you know, meaning I didn't live with any of that stress, 
it's just how it really gave you a sense of the home life and and the constant worries like the story of her you know pulling up to a stoplight and them recognizing ice next next to them how was it being behind the camera and really getting a sense of what it's like to live under that um I'm just really grateful to April's parents for April's family for inviting me into their home and being so open with their stories. Um, I was concerned um, throughout filming um, about sharing the stories that April was, was telling me. I was really concerned about um, April's mental health. Um, so, you know, as a filmmaker, you're just put in a, um, in a position where, um, you know, you have to be really careful, um, in, in choices you make and in sharing stories that people are, are, are telling you. Um, and so, um, yeah, a lot of thought, uh, I put a lot of thought into, um, what I would include in 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 the film and how I was in, including that material and so um, you know I did speak with um, uh, immigration attorneys before finalizing the piece. I wanted to make sure that um, April's family um, was for the most part safe and that they knew um, that they were well aware of. Um, any consequences of, of sharing their stories in my film. So, uh, June, I was wondering, like, the access into when the father went into parenting counseling, like, I thought that was a very intimate thing to share him. And then the other men that were in there that must have said it was okay for you to film, too. Yeah, I was... Um I was I was concerned when I asked the question, you know, to April's dad, would it be possible for me to film um, this men's group that you're a part of? Um, and he said he'd ask, and he did. And the the man who won, who runs the program, said it was fine, but he needed permission from all the men in the group. And all of the men said that's okay, and that they were they were fine. Um, um, was sharing the conversations that were being held in that space. Um, yeah, you know, this is like the the most amazing aspect of working on a film that spans multiple years is um, being able to see people change in their everyday lives um, before your eyes. And it's also... Um, really nerve-wracking because you don't know you don't know what's going to happen I had no clue um, what was going to happen with April's story or Danya's story or Ben's story um, I was just there to film um, how their lives unfolded and um, you know after five years of filming on and off it's really incredible to see where each of them are in their in their lives right now um you know april is um at cal being amazing and um kind of figuring out her future and um 
so you know it's been really special to to see her go from a freshman in high school to overcome a lot of the challenges that she was dealing with at the time graduate go on to Cal um, and now be you know a thriving student there um, Ben is um, working really hard like he always does. Um, he's running his own t-shirt business. He's working in an after-school program and he's the father of a two-year-old. Um, and, you know, he had to um, leave school for financial re reasons, um, but he's really determined to go back. And so I actually need to touch bases with them because I think that might be happening pretty pretty soon. Can I jump in and share one thing about the the pieces of the film that June captured that mm -hmm. I had no idea until I saw it for the first time a month ago was the part about how explicitly focused it was on the mental health aspect of not only being undocumented, but... Um, the issues of having your parents be undocumented, but you have citizenship, and then Ben's experience through DACA. Um, that's a, those are parts of stories of people's lives. Like, yes, it's Ben in April, and yes, it was my family, but those are the stories of so many people around this country, and especially in Oakland, that if you are from the Midwest or don't have a lot of interaction with immigrant communities or undocumented people, um, I think it's really easy to create systems and policies and laws that are completely oppressive and harmful to family and communities um, when you don't know anybody because, in, and I've seen this, I had a woman come to me after one of June's screenings at CAMFest on Piedmont Avenue and say, I'm from Vermont. I live in an all-white community. She was about 70 or a little older than 70 years old with her husband. And he was just shaking his head in disbelief behind her while she said, I've never met anybody like the two people highlighted in the film. This film completely changed my view on immigration and DACA. And she said that because she had never associated a human experience to these things, which blows my mind that, you know, prior to seeing this, we weren't actually human to you, but also grateful that this film made it real for people who actually don't understand that. What, what a powerful statement, though. It's like, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and we want to bring this film there, you know? But what a powerful statement to you, June, that you captured this. And Danya, you have to accept credit for the fact that April, when April was out juggling the ball in the film, her whole, her whole face changed. Like she was, and she wrote her, her essay to get into Cal about soccer cleats. Like you, you personally had something, a very big impact on, on her trajectory. Really do. You know, and I, I'm saying that in all honesty, like not so you can stand there and puff up, but, but you, you, I don't know you, if you understand how, how powerful that is. How, and, and June capturing it then also can spread it. The scale becomes unlimited, right? Because the more we put this film in front of people, the more minds can be changed. You know, I, if, you know I'm, I'm grateful to April if I did play any small role in her, <laughs> in her life. But um, 
you know, I would really love for other coaches around the country to see this, who I do a lot of work right now where I travel around the U.S. to predominantly politically conservative parts of the country and give trainings to coaches. And a lot of them are, um, are veteran coaches who've been in their different fields for years and some generations, um, and they're mostly all white men. And some of them, and this has come up through the work that we do, uh, are afraid to talk or don't have the language to talk to some of their athletes whom they know have different home life background experiences. Um, and so it would be really amazing for me or for anybody to get this film into those spaces um, to be able to provide a little bit more context for people who might know that there are some issues but might not actually have the language to talk about it or even know how to engage their their own athletes mm -hmm. on some of these topics and and sports is such a great thing because it is the confluence of people with certain talent right and you bring it was the only way i got introduced to anybody of different economic standing you know because you're thrown on a team and it's just the best athletes well no one asked if you you know, what your economics were, which is mm -hmm. the best, best athletes. And so they were pulled from a, a whole mix. Mm -hmm. And that's the only diversity that I experienced growing up. Um, Danya might be able to speak to this um, in more depth, but I think the reality in competitive soccer is that you don't often see economic diversity in competitive youth soccer um, in the U.S. today. Um, and I know that we've had some conversations about Danya's own experience um, growing up and, um, you know, playing on teams that were predominantly made up of um, or where Danya may have been like the only woman of color on her team um, and teams that were made up of, you know, girls and women who were from um, who could afford it. Could afford it. Yeah, yeah it's, afford it's expensive. Yeah. Soccer's in a different league than like basketball you know there's just different communities that have access in different ways um but i do agree that sports is a place where there exists that possibility mm -hmm. you know if we cut away all the barriers to entry at its core sports can be a, pla a place to bring in so many different types of people and if you can get those people on the pitch or on the court together it's about relationships. I mean, sports is fundamentally about relationships, whether it be the relationship between teammates, player and their coach, the ball and the player. Um, and so in that way, I really do see it as a special place to kind of try on these new behaviors and ways of interacting that come from more of a place of understanding and compassion um, because you're, you're playing with people. You know, mm -hmm. like I always say even on teams this was a futbolista saying actually before we ever play we learn to play against each other we learn to play with each other so we don't do any competitive games until we actually learn and like really feel through what what that even means like what does it mean to really authentically play with somebody um and yeah so sports is a place to to really work some of that out well, you know, one of the things I thought of is when I got into corporate life, I thought I thought it was going to be like sports. I thought my boss was going to be like my coach and all the other employees were going to be on my team. Not like that at all. <laughs> like, And so it was a shocker to me. It's like, wow, the boss isn't really looking 
for you to do your best. They definitely don't want you to look better than them. And the other people are all kind of out for themselves. Uh, and so I think that, that, that we, when you're an athlete, you learn to like work with the team you have and your coach is really on your side because it's a win-win if you are better then they're better. Um, so corporate America could use a little bit more of the teamwork thing <laughs> than, than they see today. And I, I find that I, I, I am, uh, attracted to people who have played sports because they sort of know how to figure it out, right? You have to figure out how to work with people, whether you don't have to like them, you don't have to hang out with them, you just have to figure out how to work well with them. So, um, June, what's next? <laughs> You're kind of on the uh, film festival tour. Yeah, I mean, I'm really <coughs> focusing right now on ways to get this film out into the world. Um, so whether it be in film festivals, um, out in the community, um, I need to get the film translated so it can be seen in Spanish-speaking um, communities um, and potential broadcast opportunities. So mm. I'm putting a lot of energy into that right now. Uh, in addition to your full-time job, right? Yes, in yes. addition to my full-time job. <laughs> um, so, Danya, what's next for you? I guess it's um, just a different continuation of this type of work of, I think more recently I've been trying to name it for myself, which is really looking at sports as a space for healing. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of, you know, there's this word people throw out. It's like trauma-informed practices right now are the new hip thing. And there are a few people that are really pushing a little bit beyond that, um, that are saying, you know, we are not our trauma. And actually... Um, there's ways in which I really feel like sports is a space to kind of work through some of our trauma, um, whether it be physical, mental, mental or emotional. Um, so I'll be looking for more opportunities to work with school districts and in classrooms and on sports fields around the country and in art galleries. Great. Well, we're excited to be showing Footballistas for Life at, at our third annual film festival, September 28th and 29th, in the Mission. Um, and the other thing we're doing is we're going to have a girls' day where we bring 140 middle school girls in, show them films, uh, do you know a boxing demo. Maybe we get Danya to come do a soccer demo, and then um, and then bring some filmmakers in, maybe June, um, to teach them how to how to create content, right? Because uh, we know that young girls are consuming um, upwards of five hours a day of content. We'd like them to be producers of it too, uh, behind the camera. And so um, we're looking forward to uh, putting this film in our, in our uh, film festival and also doing whatever we can to push it to all the places it needs to go. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Still I hear my own fears call Who are you to stand so tall? Well, I'm stronger, I'm stronger than mine Thanks for listening. Check out our show notes at womensportsfilm.com forward slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Meg Schutzer. Music by Shell, S-H-E-L, you can find more about them at shellmusic.com. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. 
positive reviews are greatly appreciated.